Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by the one and only jumbo cheeseburger. That's J.C. Abbott, John Hodge. Jean-Age is off this week. We're discussing the new lit Tiger Cats. The same old Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Commonwealth Stadium needing a retrofit, according to Rick LaLusher. And the latest on potential Halifax expansion. But first. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders hired Corey Mace as the team's new head coach. He's already endeared himself to Rider Nation. Did the Riders get the best possible candidate for the green and white? I think they did. And I know a lot of people out there when we were beginning this process were looking for Scott Blanovich or Buck Pierce because they coveted an offensive head coach, someone who could come in there and install a system for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders to score big points. But when you have a head coach, you need somebody who can manage people and you need somebody who can embody your franchise and the early returns on Corey Mace in his introductory press conference are that he is exactly the type of guy that the Saskatchewan Rough Riders need right now. The guy I really want to talk to is John Ryan, because we all laughed at him a few weeks ago when he went (laughs) on the radio, put his own name forward for this head coaching job, and talked about needing somebody who is as passionate about the Riders as Saskatchewan fans, somebody who drinks straight out of the water hose, and we laughed and we laughed and we laughed. It looks like the Saskatchewan Rough Riders actually found that guy in Corey Mace, somebody who goes in there for the interview and says, I want this effing job, who wanted to be a member of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, who wanted to move his family to Rujanga, and with everything that comes with that, both the brutal cold and the extra fan attention. This is the guy this team needs right now to change the culture into a winning one in Saskatchewan. May, so everybody knows, signed a three-year contract in this deal with the Riders. That matches up with general manager Jeremy O'Day. They're both under agreement through the 2025 CFL season. And O'Day could not stop smiling. I don't think I've seen O'Day smile as much in the entire time as he's been general manager of the Rough Riders compared to what he did in just one day, in just one press conference with Mace, if you could find somebody that looked at you the way that O'Day looked at Mace on his introductory <laughs> press conference day, I think you'd probably be in love. And it seems like O'Day is in love with Mace for all of the reasons that you mentioned, JC. It seems like an ideal fit. And really, as a head coach, you have to be a leader of men. And you hear about it from players around the league and coaches as well. There is a 
large amount of respect for Mace and what he has done in his coaching career so far. And it seems unanimous that people really feel like he was going to be a head coach at some point. It was only a matter of time. Now, the Riders and Mace are in this honeymoon period that is going to last until the regular season kicks off. And we'll see how Rider Nation feels about Mace when actual games are played. But in the here and now, this hiring makes a lot of sense for the Riders. Scott Milanovic did not want to move there. He wanted to come up during training camp in the regular season and playoffs and be there. But he did not want to embed himself in the community like Mace is planning to do. Mace is planning to move with his wife, Petra, and their two children to Regina as soon as possible. He talked about seeing houses there on the first day when he was in town for his press conference. So him and his family are committed to this. I think that's very important. And the fact that he was so vocal in wanting this job, I think played a major role for O'Day in the front office there in Regina in terms of wanting to bring Mace in, favoring him as the front runner as it got down to two with Buck Pierce and Corey Mace. I think there is still some intrigue in terms of what might have went on between Pierce and Mace and the Riders choosing, but I do ultimately think that the Riders got the best possible candidate, the guy that fits this city, this team, this province the most in Corey Mace. Make no mistake about it. Corey Mace is an exceptional football coach, right? He's still extremely young in his coaching career. What is he only 37 years old right now, Doug? Is that correct? Yep, that's right. Yeah, 37 years old. So incredibly young. He's not very far removed from being a player himself. But in two years as the defensive coordinator for the Toronto Argonauts, he, on one occasion, won a Grey Cup in a masterful defensive display that bamboozled the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and made Zach Kolaris look absolutely average in that game, and then comes back and has the best defense in football in a historic regular season for the Argos this year, leading the league in almost every category, right? Across the board, you look at the Argos, and they're at least in the top two. Now, that didn't result in a championship repeat like they wanted to, but that wasn't Mace's fault. If you look at that game in the East final against the Montreal Alouettes, the defense held up their end of the bargain. And Corey Mace has had his unit playing exceptional football for the last two seasons. And before that, in Calgary, he had a defensive line unit that was playing exceptionally. At every stage of his career, he has delivered because he appears to be somebody who can really connect with players and lead men. And now he's getting the chance to show this on the bigger stage. I think the next question will be who can Mace bring with him as a staff? We've already heard some of the rumors of the names that may be joining him in Saskatchewan. I think Mark Mueller from Calgary seems to be, the odds-on favorite to be that be OC. Coordinator. He will be the OC at that position. I'm intrigued to see if he can take another step in his development out outside of the influence of Dave Dickinson because that Calgary offense was not very good this past year. But Mace is going to bring some talented people that he's built relationships with 
from two franchises that have been incredibly successful during his tenure with each of them. Mace is going to be the defensive coordinator. Mueller will be the offensive coordinator. And Mace is out here swinging for the fences. He asked for permission from the Calgary Stampeders to talk to special teams coordinator Mark Killam, but that was denied by the Stamps on their end. And I have heard that it's in the works right now that Josh Bell, one of the position coaches that was with him in Toronto with the Argonauts, could be on his way to Saskatchewan to join Mace and his staff. But he's out here big game hunting. Like, he means business. When he said, I want this bleeping job, he meant it. And by Mace trying to get Killam out of Calgary or at least talk to him, that shows me that he is going to do whatever it takes to make this team a consistent contender in Saskatchewan. It completely changes the fabric of this team. I mean, a year ago, Mark Mueller turned down the Riders for their vacant OC position. He decided it was better off to stay in Calgary. Now, of course, some of that decision is based on the uncertainty of Craig Dickinson and whether he will be there the following season. But now that it's Mace, now that there's some certainty net there, now that there's a new voice, these talented coaches want to come over. They want to take their shot in Ryderville with all the attention that that brings and try and bring a, a winner to that city. And that is the Corey Mace effect happening right now. And that's what Trevor Harris feels like can happen in Regina as well. He believes the Riders can win a championship in 2024. Said, quote, we're going to be looking at green and white confetti coming down on us, and we're going to be celebrating, close quote. So Harris has conviction in what the Riders can do, especially now that they have a head coach in Mace. Absolutely. And, and with Trevor Harris healthy, I think it's not outside the realm of, of possibility, right? Do I think the Riders are going to enter this season as Grey Cup favorites or offseason as Grey Cup favorites? No, I do not. They're well down that list. But anything can happen, and you can turn a team around in the CFL extremely quickly, especially when you have the type of personality that players want to play for. And we talked about the coaches that Mace is bringing over and the big game hunting. Well, what players are going to be available to him? Can he bring over some of those all-stars from the Toronto Argonauts and, and add them to a, a Saskatchewan defense that really wasn't the problem last year? And with a healthy Trevor Harris at quarterback, the way he is able to play, this is a team that's going to be dramatically improved, right? We harped on the Riders and deservedly so. I think their culture was poor. You can see the seven straight losses in back-to-back -back seasons. That is evidence of that. But that would have been a different team had Trevor Harris played the full season. I think we can all acknowledge that. And this is an injury that Harris suffered that's you know not necessarily a, a repeating injury. It's not an injury that has long-term effects, even though he is 37 years old at the exact same age as his head coach, he can potentially bounce back from this type of injury and have the type of season that we've become used to seeing from Trevor Harris. And that will change the fabric of this Riders team in the way that we talk about them. Corey Mace believes he can win with Trevor Harris. He sees a guy 
that he believes is a future Hall of Famer. I'm not sure I would go that far with him, but Trevor Harris is a top half of the league quarterback in the CFL, and the Riders desperately missed him last year. And the Riders were one win away from going to the postseason last year, even with that culture that had essentially rotted. Now you bring in Corey Mace, who's given this team a major upgrade in terms of the energy around it. If you have a healthy Trevor Harris, and I understand people's reservations with him being able to stay healthy for an entire season, considering the injuries in the recent past with him. But he's a younger 37, if you will, in football terms, right? He spent first number of years in the CFL down the list as a third-string quarterback and a backup quarterback in Ottawa before he took over there when Henry Burris retired. So I think it is possible for Harris to stay healthy. They still need to do a better job up front of protecting him, but they have some weapons there on offense that are really intriguing, right? Sam Emelis coming off a 1,000-yard season, Sean Bain Jr., a guy that is at the top of the list that they need to re-sign in the offseason, in my opinion. I don't think it necessarily matters. JC, you'll probably agree with this. If they bring back Jamal Morrow, Frankie Hickson, or have somebody else toting the rock in the backfield, they got to protect Harris better. And you know Mace is going to be an upgrade on that defense just from a scheme perspective and also from the players that he could bring in. But I think it should be noted on Mace as well that – the Argonauts at times had Sean Oakman, for example, as a healthy scratch. Mace was able to quickly develop young, and in the case of a guy like Quantez Stiggers, rookie CFL players to play at a high level. So when there's conviction there from Mace in terms of who is getting brought in, having those conversations with Jeremy O'Day, you can see why Mace is excited about this team because he has what he believes is a franchise quarterback in Trevor Harris. You need to make some decisions behind him at backup quarterback. I think it would be very smart for the Riders to try to bring in Drew Brown on somewhat of a similar deal that Trevor Harris had when he went to Ottawa with Henry Burris as a backup as a succession plan. And if you can get that done or have an intriguing young person there as a backup quarterback that can step in if Harris has to miss time or is forced to miss time. You know, I think this Riders team has the makings of at least getting back in the playoffs in 2024. That would be a real coup d'etat if you could bring in Drew Brown into the building while also having Trevor Harris there. Now, whether Drew Brown would go for that with potential other spots in the CFL where he could start right away, I don't know about that. But if the Riders could get it done, that changes the franchise, not just for this year, but for years to come, potentially, if you can bring along a guy slowly and get him adjusted to your system. I think that would be a tremendous move by Saskatchewan. The Hamilton Tiger Cats also have a new head coach, Scott Milanovic. Hamilton also restructured its front office with, with Orlando Steinauer, focusing on his president of football operations role and Ed Hervey being named the general manager. Why the changes in the hammer dunk? I believe that the upper management with the Tiger Cats felt like it was time for a new voice in the locker room. When Scott Milanovic was hired there, I always felt like at some point he was going to become the offensive coordinator in 2023. That did happen when they parted ways 
with Tommy Condell, who's now gone down to the nation's capital in Ottawa. We'll touch on that in a little bit. But Milanovic seemed to infuse some life into that offense. And we're talking about a guy that has won a Grey Cup as a head coach in 2012 with the Toronto Argonauts, also has an NFL pedigree. He's been there. He's done that. He's proven he has a certain way of going about it that didn't fit in Saskatchewan, but I think it could potentially work in Hamilton. And for as great as Steinauer has been as a coach and he's beloved by the players, he wasn't able to get it done as a head coach. But that is the one factor in all of this that is surprising to me because Steinauer, first and foremost, has wanted to be a coach. Now, I would like to talk to him and understand this move and see if this is a shift for him that he really is focused on and wants to do in terms of just staying in the front office. But it's just hard for me to think that Steinauer would not want to coach anymore. That said, this is what's happening. Ed Hervey is the general manager. But you look across the CFL and what other structure is there like this where you have president of football operations, a general manager, and a head coach considering the football operations cap. Like it just doesn't seem like something that is sustainable, but maybe the salaries have been rolled back a little bit here to allow this to happen in Hamilton. So I do think that Milanovic being there can boost this franchise and potentially get them over that hump. They are the franchise in the CFL that has the longest current Grey Cup drought going all the way back to 1999 when Danny McManus was the quarterback there leading the Ticats to a Grey Cup championship with Orlando Steinauer, it should be said, on that team. So he knows what it's like to get it done as a player, but hasn't at least until this point gotten it done as a head coach. I think that's part of the reason for the move. The reason why this works under the current football operations cap is they didn't add any new pieces. It's just reshuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic here, right? Like it's the same three guys. They just each have different titles. And of the three, the only guy who doesn't get a promotion per se is Steinauer, right? He is losing the job that he loves most in head coach. Now, I think everyone understood that something had to give here. This team has not been as good the past two seasons as they've been in the past. They've seemingly declined over the last little bit, and it looked like there was too much on Steinauer's plate, right? He he couldn't handle both jobs. But this here, this particular structure seems to take more away from him than even I was expecting because you have Ed Hervey also getting a promotion and title and taking over as general manager. So what exactly is the division of doogies here? How is it different for Steinauer and what is he specifically responsible for as opposed to Hervey? I'm really interested to learn a little bit more about this structure because it is so unusual and Steinhauer feels like a guy who is sort of shoved in there because of his his past pedigree but but doesn't really have a place in the system full credit to the Hamilton spectators Steve Milton for asking Steinhauer what the flow chart is in terms of the decision making in Hamilton because in a lot of the other franchises around the league when a move is made 
you have a general idea of who was the decision maker. And I think that's been part of the frustration with Tiger Cats fans over the last number of years is that Steinauer either won't comment on it or they talk about it being a by committee approach and that's going to stay in house. I think fans want accountability, right? Fans put up their hard earned money. They deserve to have a voice. And that's why guys like Milton and us, everybody, the crew at 3downnation.com, ask sometimes what people think are difficult questions. Maybe they think they're unnecessary, but it's just what the fans are asking. So Milton asked this question, and Steinauer essentially said that it's Scott Milanovic up to Ed Hervey up to Orlando Steinauer, but then he also said there's some zigs and some zags in there. So when you get into that kind of a flow chart that isn't easily understandable for your fans, they don't know who to blame. So ultimately, they're going to blame the guy at the top. And you could see it on social media. There were a lot of people saying they felt like it was time for a change and that Steinauer shouldn't be the coach anymore. This is a guy that was hailed unanimously by Ticats fans, especially for what he did in that 15-3 and season in 2019. Then on the flip side, there might be some other people out there who would say around the league that that team was set up for success by Sean Burke and June Jones and Steinauer coach it. Now you have to coach it and get it there. So full credit to him for doing that. We're talking about him as a coach, not as a president of football operations. So I'm very curious to see here if there actually comes some accountability for the moves that are going to be made in the offseason because the biggest one that is looming is Bolivai Mitchell. He is scheduled a $175,000 roster bonus on January 15th. So the Tiger Cats, from now until that day, have a decision to make with Bo Levi Mitchell. Are we paying him that bonus? He's scheduled to make $540,000 in the 2024 CFL season. That seems like a steep price to pay considering the injuries and his level of play last year with the Tiger Cats. And the fact that, oh, by the way, Milanovic, who was the offensive coordinator, probably had a decision to make in playing Matt Schiltz for what was it 54 minutes of the East semifinal and then putting Mitchell in there at the end so there's lots to be worked out there in terms of Mitchell and where he's at but fans just want accountability so they want to understand who is making the decisions and I hope and I think Milanovic will understand this that he will be very clear about that structure to the fans because they deserve it. And they're the ones ultimately that support the team and give these guys the ability to have these titles and make the kind of money they're making. I, I completely agree with your point as to clarity for the fans, but let's also get some clarity for the organization themselves, because anytime you're saying, well, this is it, but there's some zigs and zags along the way, that means you don't know what the structure is, which opens yourself up to, all sorts of different problems in terms of people stepping on other people's toes, going behind other people's backs, doing all sorts of things. It's not a good structure unless you have a clear and distinct hierarchy of decision-making so that everybody knows their role within an organization. You demand that of your players. Know your role. Play to your role. Right. Do your job. You need to do the same thing in your front office. Now, the part of this that we haven't really touched on, Dunk, is Scott Milanovic. 
and what he can bring to the table as a head coach. Because we saw that despite the way the season's finished, there were some improvements when he took over as offensive coordinator. He made a difference. And Scott Milanovic has proven in his career that he can be a difference-making coach. I like this hire. They couldn't let him walk somewhere else in the near future. They needed to get him in a position where he had more control and he was the head coach. But my question is, how committed is he to this role and to the Hamilton Tiger Cats? Because we talked about it when we're talking about the Saskatchewan Rough Riders job. The fact that he doesn't necessarily want to spend his whole year up in the city where he's coaching. He wants to stay down in Florida. And that was... Part of the reason why the riders opted to go in a different direction. Clearly, that's still the case here in Hamilton for Milanovic, and it wasn't as big of a deal breaker for them. And there are plenty of coaches in the CFL who spend their off seasons elsewhere. But there is a part of Milanovic to me, Dunk, and I don't know if you get the same sense, that still feels like he's got one foot south of the border, that he's still waiting for that NFL opportunity that has dried up and that he's looking to bolt. He's got the corner of his eye looking down south. And to me, as talented as he is as a head coach, that's problematic if you have somebody who's in your organization who's not fully committed and fully focused on it. Now, Milanovic, I hope he proves me wrong, and he is fully invested in the Hamilton Tiger Cats' success, and that is where he's looking with both eyes. But right now, I just get the sense that he's being pulled south of the border because of his time in the NFL and how much he wants to go back there. I don't think he's being pulled to the NFL. I think he's fully focused on the Tiger Cats because he probably wouldn't say this on the record, but he knows that how well he does with the Tiger Cats or doesn't do, I should say, but if he does a good job, that will boost his cachet again to potentially get another job in the NFL. So I think he needs to be all in. Like, like that's that's extrinsic motivation for for your success. No and to me, that's it is. But extrinsic motivation is far worse than intrinsic motivation, right? If I mean, you're I still trying think to, he do, wants to win, he's a competitive guy. I, I and I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. I just wonder about the sustainability of that type of model. If you're trying to win in Hamilton to try and get another job, that doesn't bode well for long-term success in my mind that's not ideal but the tiger cats don't care they just want to win a great cup man they haven't won one since 1999 (laughs) and i think it should be said a lot of people with the rough riders and their fan base you know didn't see milanovic as a fit because he didn't want to move there but that doesn't mean that he can't be successful he has a great cup (laughs) on his resume as a head coach right he was part of those montreal alouettes teams that went to multiple Great Cups with Anthony Calvillo and that were absolutely dominant in the East Division. So it doesn't necessarily matter where he lives. He's still going to put in the film work and everything else that is required. He's just doing it from a different location in Florida in the offseason. And he'll be up there when he feels he needs to be in the Steel City to have this team in the best position to potentially compete for a Great Cup. Because I think that's the focus for Milanovic here, regardless of you talking about you know, his motivation, wanting to get back to the NFL and all that stuff, I think is a very intriguing hire. We do need to see what happens with the decision at quarterback and Bo Levi Mitchell, because I think there is 
at least a school of thought out there from some people around the league that you know, Taylor Powell looked pretty good at times last year. And some of that time was spent with Milanovic. So if you have this guy on a rookie contract, I'm not saying he's going to be Nathan Rourke, but somewhat similar to that situation where the Lions loaded up a bunch of other positions around him and became instantly a great cup contender. Part of that, and a large part of that, was due to Nathan Rourke playing really well. But do the Tiger Cats look at that and say, hey, we have Powell on this bargain rate deal. You know, it's going to be around like $80,000 is what some of these rookies sign contracts for with the upside that's in there as well for other escalators in those deals. Do we just load up around him and go with the young kid? Because I don't think that is actually, I don't want to say terrible strategy, but, you know, I think it could be smart depending on where you feel Bolivar Mitchell is at. Let's just say if you took, Mitchell's money, $540,000 is what he's scheduled to make in 2024 and divided that up. You could get some pretty high quality players at some other positions of need and surround Powell with a very talented roster. And Milanovic has shown in his past that he can develop young quarterbacks into franchise level guys. Yes, he had Ricky Ray in 2012, but Zach Kalaros and <laughs> Trevor Harris were on that depth chart in Toronto when he was with the Argonauts. And both of those guys are with franchises now, Winnipeg and Saskatchewan respectively, and viewed as legitimate QB1s in this league. That would be an extremely bold strategy. And, you know, I've come on this podcast before and pounded the table for teams to take more risks with young quarterbacks and hand them the reins sooner. But let's be honest, Dunk. Really honest with yourself. Did you see anything from Taylor Powell this year that would indicate he's even half a Nathan Rourke good? No, like, no, no, seriously. no. I'm not saying seriously. That he's Nathan Rourke good. I'm not saying he's Nathan Rourke good. I'm, I'm talking I'm not, about the Is contract. he even half Nathan Rourke's level? Because I don't think he's even half of Nathan Rourke's level. That's a whole other conversation, but I'm just talking about the contract, right? So if you believe <sighs> there's upside there with Powell, and the Tiger Cats did make the playoffs with Mitchell largely on the shelf and Powell playing a good number of those games, then yeah, I do think that Powell at least has the upside to be half as good as Rourke for sure. To me, the upside for Powell, like he looks like a guy who can be a backup in the CFL who can win you some games. I don't think he is a long-term viable starter. That's just my assessment of him. Um, and I would have a real tough time putting all my eggs in that basket for a guy that I don't think has elite starter potential, even with all the financial benefits that you get from it. And and they are many, don't get me wrong, to to save that much money on a quarterback and load up elsewhere can be extremely impactful. But I just don't see it from Taylor Powell. I think he's fine. I think he can right, have a solid Scott career Milanovic, in this league. And you're the Tiger Cats, JC, when we're talking about this discussion. If you're not going to bring back Bolivar Mitchell, let's just say that as not fact mm -hmm. right now, but as a possibility. Who else would you want to have as your starting quarterback entering 2024? I'm going after Drew Brown. Okay, but like, he's a young guy too. Powell has played more games than Drew Brown. Yeah, and Drew Brown has looked way better in the few games that he's played than Taylor Powell has. Like, I think he's that's got a, a way argument, higher. That's that a out. way higher ceiling than than Taylor Powell does. So if I'm going to take that gamble, and they are both gambles, don't get me wrong, 
they are both extreme gambles. I'm going to gamble on the guy with the higher upside. I'm going to swing for the fences, okay? Because then at least I know I've taken my shot. I, I, I don't see a huge second-year leap from Taylor Powell. I just don't. I don't think he's that type of guy. He wasn't that type of guy in college, right? And I, I think he's... I mean, okay, Nathan Rourke in college was a sub-60% passer. So guys yeah, can take leaps here. Nathan Rourke was also extremely successful in college. Like Taylor Powell and Nathan Rourke, in terms of their play in the MAC, are night and day as well. Let let's be let's be frank about that. Yeah, I'm not saying that they're the same guy. I was talking about more the contract situation, but I think that is part of the conversation that the Tigers are having behind the scenes. I'm sure looking at the quarterback position is okay. Believe I Mitchell for you know 540, or can we negotiate him down? Do we think his level of play is even requisite with that of your let's say above average CFL starter, is he worth $400,000? Is he worth $300,000? Then I think you have that conversation about Taylor Powell because he does know Milanovic's offense. Then I'm sure they're going to talk about Matthew Shields behind the scenes because he was the guy that played the majority of the Ticats playoff game in Montreal. And then as you said, yeah, you look around at some of the other potential pending free agents. Maybe Drew Brown is a guy McLeod Bethel-Thompson has said that he would be interested in a potential return to the CFL, but there's no guarantee there. He's got a big arm and would probably fit Milanovic's offense pretty well, but there's not too many options is kind of my point. So the other guy guy that that knows the offense might not be a bad idea. That's all I'm saying. Unfortunately, the you've named the the two options, Drew Brown and and McLeod Bethel-Thompson. The third option that other teams will be considering. I don't think you can, uh, fix that bridge in in Dane Evans, who you already uh, let walk last no, year and, and destroyed that relationship. So you've limited your options to two, unfortunately, if you're the Hamilton Tiger Cats. I just think either McLeod Bethel Thompson as a short-term fix or Drew Brown as a big swing long-term are much better options at the quarterback position than Taylor Powell. That's just my Did two cents. Did anyone think that Cody Fajardo would be a Grey Cup MVP up until when he actually proved it? No. So Powell, I think, could be a pretty good CFL quarterback. Maybe so, we'll so are you saying that Taylor Powell is going to be a Grey Cup MVP? Is that your prediction no, no, right no. now? I said maybe he's <laughs> going to be a pretty good CFL quarterback. I just liked what okay. I saw out of and- him. And clearly Milanovic trusted him enough to run that offense part of that was injury related though that should be said but i think he's an intriguing guy and some other people believe that around the league too sure enough the winnipeg blue bombers have signed general manager kyle walters to a two-year contract extension through the 2025 season that lines up with head coach mike o'shea's current contract assistant general managers ted gavaya and danny mcmanus have re-signed as well what took so long for Walters to get a new deal? You know, that is a very intriguing question. And the Bombers tried to use the football operations cap as an excuse, but I think that's completely bogus. When you want a guy like, let's say, what they did with O'Shea and extending his contract after, what was that, the 2022 Grey Cup loss to the Toronto Argonauts, you sign a guy. So I think what happened here is that the status quo, excuse me, in Winnipeg was realized by Wade Miller to be pretty good. And 
he felt like, based on people I've talked to around the league, that there would be some blowback from the fan base publicly if Walters was not the GM of the team anymore. But you also talk to people around the league and you hear that, you know, maybe O'Shea is making some more of the decisions and has some increased power behind the scenes, even if he doesn't have an extra title. So why I think it took time is because Miller wanted to be able to have the flexibility to survey his options and not be tied up in a longer term deal with Walters because of this football operations cap and at least see what was out there before agreeing and re-signing this contract. Yeah, it certainly doesn't feel like a big vogue of confidence for Kyle Walters right now, right? You don't let a guy who has helped construct a team that's gone to four straight Grey Cups sit on the shelf this long under normal circumstances. It's an indication that that Miller was surveying his options and, and seeing if there was another way that he could construct this front office that wasn't going to cause a revolt from the fan base that, let's be frank, has has gotten pretty used to winning and has an expectation or a belief that this particular group is is the reason for it. And he would have gotten a lot of criticism for for making a change and potentially rocking the boat for this organization. But clearly, he was looking at other ways to structure this organization, and he was putting a little bit of a squeeze on Kyle Walters. We don't know what the financials of this deal are, but we have speculated that it's probably a little bit of a pay cut for Kyle, and that's the reason why he is talking about the football operations cap, which is in some ways an excuse, but also Wade is is using this pressure and the fact that he could go in other directions and that Walters is, whether the fans want to believe it or not, expendable to to squeeze financially on those guys and, and potentially free up money for, for other people who are asking for raises. Walters has quickly gotten to work, and it was probably already in process anyways, re-signing star defensive end Willie Jefferson to a one-year contract for the 2024 season. That's to the surprise of nobody. It didn't seem like Jefferson wanted to leave there, and he seems like he wants to get another great cup there. The interesting, I should say, issue, I guess, behind the scenes will be O'Shea and the dedication and commitment that he has to his veteran players. And the fact that it's obvious to a lot of people, maybe except O'Shea right now, that they're going to have to move on from some of those veterans if they want to stay of Grey Cup championship caliber. I do think Jefferson is a smart re-signing. He still played at a high level in 2023, was a CFL All-Star, had a bunch of sacks, a bunch of knockdowns. He's the only guy in CFL history with over 60 sacks and 60 knockdowns in a single career. The guy is still an absolute beast at defensive end, but he didn't play as well as I thought he would, to be quite honest, in that Grey Cup. He was neutralized. I think he's not as physical as you probably would like as a defensive lineman, but he's going to be back, and there's no doubt he's a freak. So the Bombers are going to have to make some difficult decisions at some of these other positions. The biggest one probably is Stanley Bryant and left tackle because those just don't come around too often even though Bryant's level of play has dropped off from what we're used to seeing from him in recent years. 
Yeah, there's going to be some tough choices. And you talk about O'Shea getting a little bit more power in the organization and potentially Kyle Walter's position degrading a little bit and being viewed as expendable. Is he going to have enough sway or enough gumption to tell Mike O'Shea no when he wants to bring some of these guys back? And Bryant, to me, is is probably the most difficult one because he is so elevated in age, but the other options out there are certainly going to be underwhelming. But with a number of these veterans, and yes, some of them are going to be contemplating retirement. But even when you look at the depth of the roster and veteran Canadian special teamers, Mike O'Shea will always, always lean towards his veterans. And Danny McManus and Ted Gavaya are two of the best out there in terms of being able to find new talent and bring guys in. I mean, you can you can list on on one hand the amount of guys anywhere in pro football that work as hard as they do pounding the scouting trail. But Mike O'Shea has to meet you halfway. And he loves his veterans. If you don't have a strong general manager to be able to tell him no. Things are not going to improve for this team. We're going to see the deterioration of the dynasty. It's still the team, though, that was number one in the West Division last season, although the BC Lions have closed that gap, and they've made it to four straight great cups and are pretty darn close to winning four in a row. I mean, maybe you could argue the other way as well, that they could have lost four in a row, but they dominated the Tiger Cats in 2019. That game in 2021 was close, obviously went to overtime, but the last two great cups – They've lost by a combined total of five points and still, until beaten, are the class of the West Division. Elks president Rick LaLaucheur said the team needs some, quote, very high investment, close quote, into Commonwealth Stadium if it's going to go forward as a CFL venue. Can the green and gold retrofit or update Commonwealth? These were some pretty bold statements from LaLaucheur in this press conference I thought about Commonwealth Stadium, which is you know, a venue that's not terribly old. It's on the older end of the CFL spectrum, but is still you know, a reasonable sporting venue. It's just the size is far too big for where the CFL and where the Edmonton Elks are right now. And the fact that he came out and said, if it was my choice and I had all the money in the world available to me, I would build a new stadium absolutely blew my mind because that is a long-standing agreement that the Elks have had with the city there in Edmonton for Commonwealth Stadium. I mean, it's been the venue for as long as I've been alive. I associate those two hand in hand, but he has a point here, right? This is a, a stadium that is making it more difficult to sell tickets simply because you can't fill it up. So you can't build the atmosphere. Right. And it doesn't have the necessary amenities in terms of suites that teams can sell at a higher cost to, to, you know, bump up their revenue. Is there the possibility to retrofit it and, and update the stadium? Of course there is. I mean, this stadium has been expanded pretty consistently over the last 30, 25 years to get it to where it is now. Now it almost needs to shrink. They're closing the upper deck. Can you add on some different amenities? Potentially. But I think some of that set in stone, and and really it's just going to be an inopportune venue 
for the Elks for the foreseeable future. Yeah, it kind of is what it is. And even LaLashure admitted that he doesn't have the kind of dollars it would take to completely upgrade the stadium or get a new one somewhere else in Edmonton if the Elks are not going to play at Commonwealth. I'm more interested in terms of what happens with private ownership for this team because LaLashure was able to find Mark Doman, who has been unbelievable for the BC Lions there in his first couple of years of ownership of the Leos. So if Lulasher can find a committed local owner in Edmonton or who has ties to Alberta, I think that would be a big time win for the Elks and it could really boost this team in the future. Absolutely. But even Amar Doman, he criticized BC Place a little bit when he first came in as the Lions owner. And he doesn't have the money to change that stadium situation either, which is another venue that is far too large right now for the demands of a CFL team. It's just an indication of the changing consumer market right now in Canada for sports in general, but especially for the CFL, that you just can't fill up these places anymore. And unfortunately, teams spent a lot of time building for the old model with these large stadiums and governments back them and and now they're here and they're just too big and there's nothing you can do about that you know you talk about stadiums and the league would like to find a solution for one in atlantic canada commissioner randy ambrosi said the league is taking one big hard swing at potential expansion to halifax and they'll move on if it doesn't materialize in the near future is this just a big power play from Ambrosi? Look, I I believe that they are in talks with an interested potential owner. That's what Ambrosi reiterated here and what he said at Grey Cup during his stay at the league address. There is somebody having conversations with them right now. Now, is the quality of that ownership candidate as you know, good as Ambrosi is indicating. I have no idea. I don't know who it is at this stage. He's anonymous currently. So we don't know. I believe there are talks happening, but this is certainly the last sort of talks that we're going to see on Halifax for a while because I think the league is getting a little bit frustrated about that whole situation, and they should be because they are not getting it done right now. Now, the power play aspect of this, and we've talked about it on the podcast before, is when Randy Ambrosi brings up alternative options to Halifax. And I know there are a lot of people, whenever this subject comes up on social media, who like to tout the alternative options to expansion besides Halifax. And let me speak directly to them and to the commissioner. They are all garbage, okay? It is Halifax or bust, guys. Let's be frank. A team in Quebec City will not work. You know how I know this? The most powerful football man in Quebec City, Jacques Tanguay, said we have no interest. The league is is sprinkling fairy dust. Okay, He's already said that. And unless you get Jacques Tanguay and the Laval Rouge or on board for a team in Quebec City, you will not have a team in Quebec City, which, by the way, is a city that has exactly the same problems in terms of no appropriate stadium and a, a lack of, of willingness for public money to invest 
as Halifax. So you're entering a market with a cultural disconnect with the most powerful people stacked against you because they don't want it to interfere with their own collegiate program and still no movement on a stadium or public investment. It doesn't work, guys. Okay, And there is no other viable city across the country that you could consider. If they don't get it done in Halifax, they won't get it done anywhere. And when Ambrosi says they'd like to have discussions about Quebec City, there's a reason those discussions haven't happened yet. And the reason is they don't want to talk to the CFL. They don't want to talk to you, Randy. They've told you that already. My man, fired up about it. But... You know, I think, JC, you make a valid point here because the way the league is positioning this publicly and specifically Ambrosi makes it seem like there's other interested cities, but there are no other cities that are anywhere even close to the realm of possibility of actually having a team there in the not-too-distant future than Halifax. And I don't understand why the league wants to try to continue to strong arm them into this. We've said this multiple times on the podcast, written it on 3downnation.com as well, that they need to take up the Atlantic Canadian way and go about this the way that, what are they called, Haligonians, I think, would want this to happen. And understand that, yeah, there's probably not going to be a lot of money from the municipal or federal or provincial governments to help this get going. There are stadium solutions there that I think if you had a vested local owner could put a team on the field in the relatively short term, but that is what it is. So stop strong arming and talking to Halifax in this way, like you're in the bottom of the ninth and we're taking one big swing. And if we strike out, we're going somewhere else because as you mentioned for your reasons in Quebec City, it doesn't seem like there's an appetite there for that right now. That could change, and perhaps behind the scenes for some balance. There have been some conversations that the CFL has had that we are not privy to or don't know about because Ambrosi continues to talk about Quebec City, but he looks foolish when he keeps talking about it with no tangible update to sort of refute what Jacques Tange has said about potential CFL expansion there. Do I think it would help the league out to get to 10 teams? Yes. And Ambrosi wants to trumpet those benefits, but you actually have to get there at some point. And I think it could be accomplished in Halifax if you go about it in an Atlantic Canadian way and stop talking like this publicly about expanding to Atlantic Canada. Yeah, I think Ambrosi has played this extremely poorly, and he has a tendency to do that, as we well know, Doug, where he's come in a little too hard, and he's backed himself in a corner where now he has promised expansion on multiple occasions. He said it's happening, right? I have Mm -hmm. that that mission from the board of governors it's happening we're going to deliver it he's backed his entire reputation on expansion which is something that admittedly is extremely difficult to get through on in the best of circumstances and because he has no out all he's left to do is is play hardball but there's there's no alternative here right that it's here or bust and he hasn't buggered up the city of halifax he hasn't gone about it in a way 
that has you know endeared himself in my mind to the people he needs to endear himself to. Instead, he's come in like a bull in a china shop and insisted upon expansion. And this isn't something that you can insist upon, right? It's very similar to how he handled trying to get government money in the pandemic. He came in way too strong and insisted that he had to get this major investment from the government, which seemed ludicrous at the time. Well, it's the it's the same thing here. He's insisting himself on Halifax, and that's just not going to work with people on the East Coast. It's like your pod friend there insisting he wants to go for a walk. <laughs> that is true. Yes, he's he's not thrilled by the fact that I'm podcasting during his walk time. <laughs> What's his name? Is it Elf? That's Elfie, yeah. Elfie, Elfie. man. We got to let the yeah. people know about Elfie. Jumbo Cheeseburger and Elfie. What a pair. <laughs> the Montreal Alouettes have insisted on signing Grey Cup MVP quarterback Cody Fajardo to a contract extension through the 2025 season. Fajardo initially signed with the Alouettes last year in free agency. That was a two-year deal that was scheduled to run through the end of the 2024 season. So Danny Machocha, the general manager, has gone ahead and added one extra year to Fajardo's deal. And JC, you were with me in the winning locker room at Tim Hortons Field. When I asked Machocha this, and I mean, yeah, they were celebrating and spraying all this kind of stuff around, but I felt like, hey, get a quarterback going in the final year of his deal that just won you the Grey Cup. You probably want to at least have him under contract for multiple Years And Machocha kind of admitted to that. He said, hey, maybe I should have signed him with three. Well, he's gone and done that through 2025. JC, do you think this is a smart decision? It's smart to get your quarterback under contract as soon as possible. Now, we don't know the financials of this deal yet. It's breaking as we are recording this podcast. So I will refrain from making any bold statements in terms of how good this deal is until I see the financial numbers. Because to me, that matters. Cody Fajardo had an exceptional Grey Cup game. As we've mentioned already today, nobody expected him to be Grey Cup MVP. And he went out there and he was more than deserving of it. And he won that game for his team. Does that change who Cody Fajardo is as a quarterback? I don't think it does, right? He is still the guy that we know. He's more of a game manager. I don't think he is in the elite category of CFL quarterbacks. He had an exceptional game. He can have exceptional games, but he is going to be the player that we saw throughout the year, which is a player that you can win with, but not usually because of. And if they're paying him appropriate money for that type of of player, and they're getting him under contract early, I think that's a fantastic deal. If they've gone out here and let the champagne affect their decision-making and they're paying him like one of the top three quarterbacks in the league, then I think this is probably premature, and and that would be too much money in my mind to spend on Cody Fajardo. But until we know the financial details, we won't know how good this particular deal is. You know, playing the way that Fajardo did in that Grey Cup, especially making that clutch throw to Tyson Philpot on that game-winning TD and that drive overall, I think can really boost confidence of a quarterback. So I'm curious to see how Fajardo is in the 2024 season. I think we could see 
a totally new guy in terms of the swagger that he has. For reference, in 2023, he made over $400,000, 371000 of that was in hard money. He got a $125,000 signing bonus to sign that initial contract. So based on the past and knowing how some of these deals are usually done, this to me seems like the Alouettes are using up the rest of their cap space allotted in 2023 to be able to give Fajardo a big signing bonus that helps him out with taxes as well in exchange for another year on the contract. But JC, you're right. Until we see, especially what that hard money is in CFL terms, it's kind of like guaranteed money, then it's hard to say. But I think this is just a smart deal overall for the Alouettes to get Fajardo locked in for another season. Because I think Montreal has the makings here of a young, up-and-coming team. Yes, there are some veteran pieces, but by and large part, this is a team that has a lot of guys who are, you could argue, not even at the peak of their games quite yet. Yeah, there's some young pieces that can continue. Now, some of those, I believe, will probably explore NFL opportunities. So you may lose some of those young pieces, particularly on defense. But they can continue to build uh, this team, and Fajardo will be a part of that. Now, you mentioned hard money and guaranteed money. There's a potential here that you know part of our assessment of this deal will be based on whether there's guaranteed money in the final year of this contract. Because, of course, when Fajardo signed as a free agent in Montreal, he wasn't able to get any guaranteed money in his contract because he was joining a new team. Now, if he's signing a contract extension for his existing team, he can get guaranteed money in the final year of that deal in that 2025 season. So I'd be interested to see how much of that he potentially received. It can be up to 50% of that final year of the deal. He's potentially in line for that, which means it puts the the franchise in a a little bit of a tough position if he doesn't come out and play like he did in that Grey Cup for all of next season because they'll have a a guaranteed financial investment in him for several years to come. The Red Blacks hired Tommy Condell as the team's offensive coordinator for the 2024 season. Can he help Ottawa get back in playoff contention? Well, he's not going to make them worse because that is – basically impossible at this point right um but of all the hirings you could make and this is not meant to disrespect tommy condell this just doesn't feel like very big of a swing right this is a guy that we know what tommy condell is we know what he can deliver he's had some good seasons he's had some poor seasons right there is a reason why the hamilton tiger cats moved on from him this past year and I don't know if he's the type of OC that's going to redefine your offense and suddenly put your team over the top he's going to be a steady hand he's a solid coach he's a veteran coach in this league who's well understood but I would have liked to see them go with a younger candidate here and 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 try and and do something with a lesser known coach I mean that's tough to say that's really tough to well, say. You can't I think, say you would have liked to see them go with a younger person without giving us at least one name. Well, I mean, the answer is, and, and of course, the, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders situation makes this difficult, but Mark Mueller, I think, is the other guy that they wanted here, 
right from Calgary and giving him the full OC control in Ottawa. Now that wasn't going to happen once Corey Mace was hired and brought him over. But I don't even think I need to I need to name a name, Justin, because that's up to the organization to find young coaching candidates both in the league and outside the league, right? And it gets a little tired to just recycle the old names and guys who were just fired. Now, can that be successful? Absolutely. Look what Jason Moss just did in Montreal. But I think it behooves teams, particularly struggling teams, to try and take some swings. Because, look, if it's not going to work, you're going to get fired anyway. And I don't know if Tommy Condell is a guy who saves everyone's job. So if you're going to throw out they should go after a younger coach, and I think you have to have a name there. Like I think that's just par for the course, okay? If they were going to do that, then you know maybe they should have at least talked to Toronto about Pete Costanza. I'm not saying they should have hired him, but or maybe a Mike Miller. Or did they at least even inquire about Buck Pierce, even though we know he's probably not going to want to leave Winnipeg because he didn't do it for a head coaching role anyways. But I think you have to at least talk about who some of these younger and up-and-coming people are that you could have at least gone out and got. And those are the two names that just come quickly to mind. For me, I'm not saying they should have gone and tried to get Costanza or Miller. But if you're going to make that point, I think there have to be some names brought to the table. The interesting thing... Sorry, I, I don't. Condell. You go ahead. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily think it has to be younger either. It just has to be bold. Like the other name that's been floated out there is June Jones, who is, of course, much older and has a history in the league, but is someone who has proven in the past that he can come in and shake up an offense, right? Who's not afraid to do bold things and, and, and do something different from what has been done before. Now, is he an ideal candidate at this stage of his life? Probably not. But I'd be more excited about that move than I am with Condell, just personally, because I know what Condell's going to bring to the table, and it's not going to light the world on fire. He did do that in 2019, though, to be fair. So yeah, but he was, he was doing it with... a couple of with... sentences there, just hold on a second. You said you wanted a younger, non-recycled coach. But then you said you wanted June Jones, who would be a recycled older coach. So which one is it? I want something bold, Dunk. I want something <laughs> okay. flashy. Tommy Condell is not flashy. Well, I mean, 2019 was pretty flashy under Tommy Condell. Yeah, but you that, was, that was June Jones' thing that he built. Jalen Addison. Go ahead. That, like June Jones built that, and Condell just took over it, and then eventually rang it into the ground. But Let's be frank about coach that. It, okay, he still has to coach it. In 2019, that Tiger Cats offense why, was an Why weren't they that in 2021 and 2022? Like, Condell was still there. Like, why did it go downhill? You can't just talk about the peak when he took over and then not note the fact that they got worse every year. I'm not saying I wasn't going to note it, but I'm saying for argument's <laughs> sake, Condell has had a really good season in recent memory. Or 2021... In 2022, and his time in 2023 with the Ticats, good enough? Clearly not, because they didn't win a Grey Cup. But in 2021, they got to the Grey Cup, and then they had to make the decision on whether or not they were going with you know Dane Evans or Jeremiah Masoli at quarterback. And from what I was told, this is for 2022, Condell was not involved in that decision perhaps as much as he might have wanted to be or should have been. 
So he had to deal with Dane Evans in 2022. We all know how that turned out and maybe wasn't the guy that he wanted. We don't know for sure. And I don't think Condell will talk about that publicly. And then in 2023, it was Bo Levi Mitchell getting injured. And then you had to deal with some of these younger quarterbacks in there for the upside that some people feel Matthew Schultz might have. He got hurt. And then you had to have Taylor Powell in there. Did the offense look better under Milanovic when he took over? Yes. I think that's also partly from a breath of fresh air. But I don't think you can sort of lump all that on Condell. I think he could still be a high-level offensive coordinator. But he needs to come out and prove it, to be quite honest, to your point of what we've seen in the last couple of years now. And I do think you can at least say that in 2019, guys like Brandon Banks and Braylon Addison and Jalen Acklin to a degree but the first two guys had career years. Like we never saw those guys have as good of seasons as they had in 2019. A lot of that I think was because of injuries, especially with Addison and then Banks seemed to just kind of fall off a cliff a little bit as the years went along a little bit gradually. But you look around the league and I'm kind of with you. June Jones would have been very intriguing considering, you know, at least Jeremiah Masoli's under contract with the team right now for next season. We'll see what happens. The bigger question to me in Ottawa surrounds the quarterback position. And if Condell gets input into it, I believe he will. He praised Dustin Crum on TSN radio the other day saying he wills things to happen. I don't think that's him saying that Crum is going to be his guy. But when you're giving out bouquets of flowers here and you're talking about the team's quarterbacks, you know, I think that's a positive sign for Crum. And that brings me to a similar conversation we had about Taylor Powell and Hamilton with Crum in Ottawa. Do the Red Blacks decide to roll with Crum and load up the rest of the roster with the extra money because Crum's on a rookie deal? Or do they go out and try to get a McLeod Bethel Thompson? Do they redo Jeremiah Masoli's contract to have him there on a backup quarterback with maybe escalators, if he gets back healthy, it becomes the starters. There's lots of debate going on in the nation's capital among their fan base about what they should do a quarterback. And then, oh, by the way, I know you're going to mention him. Drew Brown is a pending free agent quarterback. Do you bring him in there? But if you bring Brown in there, what does that say to Crum, who has played way more football than Brown at this point in their careers? Yeah, it's a- I think it's an even tougher quarterback decision than the, than the one in, in Hamilton. And the reason why, Taylor Powell, I think, has been steady. Like, we know what he is. Dustin Crum, for me, is a bit of an enigma because the high ceiling of what he's shown is much higher than what Taylor Powell did. But the lows, oh boy, they are really low, right? There are times where he's holding on to that ball and you can you wonder if he can even rig a defense right? The way he is playing. And then he comes in late in games in the fourth quarter, uses his legs, finds a rhythm and has done some exceptional, exceptional stuff. To me, he feels like a guy who needs to sit for a year and he didn't get to sit this year. And I I don't want to hand him the reins right now, but you can definitely see the flashes that Tommy Condell is talking about in that interview and the potential there with Dustin Crum, it's just a matter of how inconsistent he is in delivering it. And and frankly, if I'm Ottawa, I'm not sure I want to roll with that going into next season until I've given him a little bit more seasoning and sat him down and taught him how to actually read a defense in a situation where he's not going to get smoked in the mouth. 
to be fair here with Crum, Gahari Jones wasn't showing the necessary progression as an offensive coordinator throughout the season. Mm-hmm. That's why he's not back. The offensive line did not play up to some of their pay grades, yep. and they need to be better in the receiving group. So if you have an upgraded offensive coordinator, which the Red Blacks believe Condell is, regardless of what other people think about him, and your offensive line plays better, and you bring in some more dangerous pieces in the receiving group, that ultimately elevates Crumb. So I think it's unfair to say that, well, he didn't know about reading defenses, and he wasn't showing the progression that you might want to see. Progression isn't just a straight arrow up and to the right all the time. And I think with a more veteran coordinator who's been around the league, who's been with multiple kinds of different quarterbacks, it'll be really intriguing to see what Condell does with Crumb if indeed he is their starter. But they have to make that decision. And if he is, you have this extra money to go out and get some receivers that you think can really be game-breaking for him. Yes, they have Jalen Acklin, and Justin Hardy is serviceable, but he's getting into his mid-30s. I think they need some guys that can stay healthy and really be a vertical stretch element to that offense. They thought Shaq Evans could be that guy. Doesn't seem like he has it in him anymore with some of these injuries that he sustained recently. So I'd be very curious to see how Crum progresses under Condell with an offense that is playing at a much better level with improved talent around. You hit the nail right on the head there, Justin, in terms of like, you need to add pieces around Dustin Crump. You can't fully evaluate him with what you had last year. And and I think the other element of this that we haven't touched on, and I know we need to move on here, but Jeremiah Mazzoli has said that he's willing to restructure his deal and stick around for essentially backup money. Right. And if that happens, does that give you a safety blanket to roll with Crumb? Because, you know, as as much doubts as we have about Mazzoli and his health right now, you've at least got someone sitting on the bench who has, you know, a steady hand who can step in if worse comes to worse. The problem is, if you're Ottawa, everyone there has to be on the hot seat going into this year. Is that the type of gamble you're going to make right now with your job situation? I think it should be because the potential is high, but that's typically not how football operations people operate when they know their job's on the line. That's the other major factor, but I think you can look at the Red Blacks last year and say if they close out some games, you know, especially that one that you were at live in BC, (laughs) that would be high on the list. And this team could easily have been in the playoff mix. So I think if you get some of those upgrades and you talk to the ownership group at OSEG there and say, hey, you know, we have a high level of potential on Crumb, and this is what we're going to go with, I think they could understand that. Now, there is obviously some validation to the argument to bring in a McLeod Bethel Thompson or to go sign a Drew Brown. But the Brown one in particular, to me, doesn't necessarily make sense because you have a very similar, I guess, level and experienced player. And Crum has more experience than Brown already there. Unless you're just going to bring in Drew Brown on a contract where he has escalators for playtime if he becomes the starter. But then what does that say to Crump? So I think that decision in and of itself is very interesting. And you mentioned Masoli there. 
some people around the league, I think, are sort of casting him off, feel like he can never be healthy again. I can understand that. But if he does get healthy and you redo his deal, you at least have that veteran presence there who knows what it's like to be in Condell's system. And Masoli's played very well in that system. So there are different iterations here that could go on at the quarterback position. But if you can use some of that extra money, if you don't go spend a bunch of money on Drew Brown or McLeod Buffalo-Thompson to invest around Crum, I think that could be a very intriguing situation. There are people around the league that told me that they feel like Crum has a higher overall upside than Trey Ford. Take that for what it is. I'm a Canadian quarterback backer. I think Ford has a massive upside. He's still got a lot of learning and room to grow, though. But it just tells you how Crum is thought of around the league by rival executives. Let's go to the three-minute drill. Tens of thousands of people filled the streets in Montreal for the Alouette's Grey Cup Parade. Did you think that many people would ever show up in your wildest imagination? I was blown away by the numbers out there for the parade. Clearly, there is a renewed interest in the CFL and the Alouettes in Montreal. Good on that organization for delivering a Grey Cup championship this year. Two-time MOP Zach Kolaros said in the right situation, pending free agent Drew Brown could be the best QB in the CFL. Do you believe Kolaros is right? If Caleros is saying it, then I tend to believe that he is on point, but Brown is going to have to go out and prove that statement right wherever he ends up. The BC Lions re-signed veteran defensive lineman Steven Stove Richardson. Can he still make an impact on the CFL? We'll see. I mean, he's coming off back-to-back Achilles tears. We thought his career was done. I was completely blindsided by this signing, to be honest. But when he was in his prime, when he was healthy, Stove Richardson was one of the most underrated defensive tackles in the league. He could fundamentally change the BC Lions' run defense and how they operate in the interior of their defensive line. If he is even a fraction of the player he used to be, this is an exceptional signing. The Stampeders signed defensive end James Vodders to a two-year contract extension through the 2025 season. Is Calgary getting him at a bargain rate? Usually if a player is re-signing with the Stampeders, then yes, they're getting him at a bargain rate. I would bet that Vodders is at least on the books for less than $200,000. Top CFL draft prospect, University of Saskatchewan linebacker Nick Weeb suffered a torn ACL in the Huskies' Hardy Cup semifinal loss. How much does that potentially impact his CFL draft stock? It's going to impact his stock because you're going to have to view him as a futures pick now. I think you can see this as sort of a similarity to his teammate, Charlie Ringland last year who tore his ACL at the CFL combine and dropped to, I believe the fourth round where the BC Lions picked him. You'll see a similar situation with Weeb here. He's a guy who would be in the first round conversation. If he's healthy, potentially getting NFL interest. He's an extremely talented linebacker though. So somebody's going to draft him regardless. It's just going to be a little bit later than they would if he was fully healthy and ready to go on day one. Alouette's general manager, Danny Machocha, said it wouldn't surprise him if University of Montreal Carabin quarterback Jonathan Senecal plays in the CFL. Could that be a possible for the Heck Crichton and Vangie Cup trophy winner? 
I think it's definitely a possibility, but he still has some development to undergo here. He was fortunate to play on a team that had arguably the best defense in Canadian University football that forced more turnovers 22 than points allowed in the playoffs 21 on their way to that Vanier Cup. That said, I do think Senecal has put on more weight. He does look better as a passer. He has that elusive ability outside the pocket. So I see what Machocha is talking about. Canadian offensive lineman Isaiah Adams has accepted his invite to the 2024 Senior Bowl. What is his upside in the NFL? He has massive upside. To me, Isaiah Adams is at least a top 10, maybe a top 5 guard in this coming NFL draft. He is really special. Now, he had a down senior season at Illinois because they played him at right tackle, which is not his natural NFL position. But when he plays inside at guard, he is an exceptional player with special, special movement ability. And it should be noted, this is a U-sports players guy. He started at Wilfrid Laurier University as a true freshman back on the opposite side from current Calgary Stampeders tackle Bryce Bell. He moved on to JUCO and then to Illinois, and now he is going to be probably a day-two pick in this coming NFL draft. Argonauts head coach Ryan Dinwiddie said he would consider any NFL opportunity that's the right fit. Is that smart, Dunk? Of course it is, because he can make way more money down there, but it has to be an ideal situation. He's turned down NFL offers in the past, namely with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, for fear of Dirk Cutter getting fired there, and that's exactly how it played out in Tampa Bay. So Dinwiddie's going to be smart about this, and his profile is very high right now after leading the Grey Cup, the Argonauts, I should say, to a Grey Cup in 2022, and then having them tie the CFL record with 16 wins in 2023 the Ticats re-signed Canadian defensive back Stavros Katsantanis to a two-year deal through the 2025 season easy decision right absolutely the easiest decision that team has ever made and I just want to point out once again that I was the founding member of the Stavros Katsantanis fan club and I remain its president and chair And I would just like my flowers right now, please, now that he is an all-star caliber player in the CFL. I'll give you a jumbo cheeseburger. How about that? (laughs) Much appreciated. (laughs) Canadian quarterback Curtis Rourke has entered the NCAA's transfer portal. Can he land at a big-time school? I think it's possible. You know, he's already started here with offers from Wake Forest, BYU, and Vanderbilt. So, to me, I wouldn't necessarily categorize those as like the big, big time. But we're talking about a school in Vanderbilt that has an alum of one Jay Cutler. So I'm not saying he's going to be the next Jay Cutler and be a high NFL draft pick, but this is what Rourke is looking at. Transferring to a school that has a bigger profile, potentially playing in a conference like the SEC to raise his NFL draft stock. It's prudent. It's smart. I like the way that Rourke is playing this. Canadian offensive lineman Anim Dankwa has accepted an invite to the East-West Shrine Bowl. Is the NFL in his future? I think it is, either as a late-round draft pick or as a high-priority free agent. He's widely regarded as the best NFL prospect from an HBCU right now. He plays at Howard University, who is about to contend for a historical black uh 
college and university national championship um, in two weeks time. And he is six foot eight, 362 pounds. And he plays out at tackle with incredible feet. He is a special player with special size. He is going to be in the NFL next season. That does it for this episode of the three down nation podcast. Thanks for joining us and make sure to catch our next episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.